Hello everyone, I'm Roger Highfield uh, of the Science Museum and I suppose we've got an interest in today's events because you know we've worked with people like Conrad Shawcross and Zaha Hadid and David Hockney and inspired people like Henry Moore and we have a Leonardo exhibition and we've got an amazing panel uh, here today at the Times Cheltenham Science Festival. Uh, I'm going to start off with Arthur Miller of University College London, a uh, philosopher, historian, uh, who's dedicated his life to understanding the seeds of creativity in the arts and in the sciences. Um, then next to him we've got Paul Prudence, a sound video artist of international renown. And then right over on the far end there, media artist Mike Phillips, professor of interdisciplinary arts at Plymouth University. Now we're here to explore the struggles to use science to create dramatically different art. Uh, we're going to look at the way the relationship between art and science has evolved. And with a bit of luck, we're going to find out where it's going to head in the 21st century. So I'm going to start off with a quick um, chat uh, with Arthur about his new book, which will be, um, he'll, he'll be doing a signing uh, after this uh, in the bookshop, Colliding Worlds, How Cutting-Edge Science is Redefining Contemporary Art. And then we're going to have uh, two works of art shown by Mike and Paul. Quick chat between ourselves, and then we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, and then we'll end crisply at 3.30. So, Arthur, let me, let me just, just begin with the book. Um, Colliding Worlds, Why, what, um, what inspired you? What, what was the itch you had to scratch uh, when you wrote this book? Let me flash up on the screen a slide, if I may. Nothing's happening up there. Ah, oh, here we are, right, right, oh, we're, we're there, okay, right. Now let's, let's get into the nitty-gritty of it all. Come on, guys, concentrate yeah. on the AV uh, side of things. There we are, right, there's, there's the book. Uh, F5. Is there anybody out there? Uh, <laughs> IV? <laughs> IV has abandoned us. Um, is that F5 there? That could be. Uh, there we are. Uh, right, we're magic. off. We're off. Okay. Uh, well, uh, let me talk about why I wrote the book. I had uh, sensed the uh, emergence of a brand new, very 21st century art movement, which the uh, art community and the general public seem to not be very aware of. And that's what impelled me to write the book. Let me embellish that a bit. Uh, since the 1970s, I've been uh, observing and writing on the growth of art influenced by science, science influenced by art, and collaborations between artists and scientists. But not a, not a trace of this work was available in the Tate Modern or the many art galleries, supposedly avant-garde art galleries, that line the streets of Hoxton and Shoreditch. And instead, one saw art, a very traditional kind of art, of uh, Damien Hirst's shock and formaldehyde and Tracy Eman's unmade bed. Now, this was so 20th century. Things have changed and changed dramatically. In the 21st century, science and technology permeate our lives, leading us to reassess our relationship with the cosmos, with the world about us, and 
reassess what it means to be a human being and the radical changes our bodies will undergo. A small group of scientists responded to this by becoming scientist technologists. And they form the, the core of, the, of a new art movement, which I call Art Sci. It's the new avant-garde because it produces works that differ radically from anything that's gone before. And that's why I wrote this book. Well, just give us a bit of the historical context, because there's always been fascinating interactions between the communities of artists and scientists. So what, what do you, well, just, just, just tell us how far we've come, and then we'll move on to where, where we're heading. Okay. Uh, looking at the 20th century and the first half of the 20th century, uh, artists used the ideas of science and technology, but not the media. I mean artists such as the Cubists, the Futurists, the, the Surrealists. Uh, and this, was the, this is the theme of my first book-length study of the interplay between art and science, Einstein-Picasso, which is a parallel biography that focuses on the first decade of the 20th century when they were young men and made their greatest breakthroughs. In 1905, Einstein discovered relativity theory because he thought like an artist. And in 1907, Picasso created his breakthrough painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the harbinger of cubism, because he thought like a scientist. But this I mean the following. In the very first sentence of his relativity paper, Einstein makes it clear that he's focusing on issues concerning symmetry and beauty in science. And uh, uh, Picasso responded to the uh, influence by uh, developments, contemporaneous developments in mathematics science and technology. Other artists used uh, cubism as a springboard, used cubism, uh, went beyond cubism using science as a springboard. But it was not until the second half of the 20th century that artists began to use the media of science and technology and began to collaborate with scientists and technologists. And the, the catalyst for this was the appearance of uh, digital computers and a large amount of electronics on the market. This enabled artists to pursue what they had always pursued, to, re to represent emotions and the world about them, only with devices that went beyond brush and chisel. So tell us then, Arthur, where, where do you see things heading over the next, over the 21st century? What, what's changing? And uh, where's it heading? Well, uh, the, uh, in the 21st century, the, the interplay between art, science, and technology blossomed into uh, uh, the new art movement called Art Sci. And I, I became, uh, uh, became terribly aware of this when I saw a, uh, an exhibit in New York City in 2002 that extolled the virtues of the aesthetics of coding. And on display were lines of code as art. I mean, this just jump back at this, I mean, because th this meant that it was more than an interplay between art, science, and technology that was going on, rather they were merging. And I thought about this over the years and started to track down the artists who were at the center of this movement, and the interviews with them formed the core of my book, their dispatches from, from the edge. Well, you've already alluded to the slightly snobbish attitude of the arts establishment towards this or rather is it that they disdain it or are they ignoring it or it just doesn't sort of even feature on their radar screen what's what what's going on there oh yes well uh uh art science and technology uh as as uh, as we know them are disappearing 
uh, merging into what I call a third culture, uh, in which what I refer to as art sci will be known uh, simply as art. And in it, the, there is a person who is a combination of artist, scientist, technologist merged into one. And by a third culture, I mean a culture in addition to the traditional two cultures of the arts and the humanities. And in fact, we have here uh, today uh, two denizens of that third culture, uh, Paul Prudence, who uh, practice, uh, practice a new sort of sound art, a uh, sound art in which image and, and sound are played off one another via a creative algorithm, and Mike Phillips, who's a new sort of media artist he will demonstrate to us generating art from, uh, from nanotechnology. And I'd like to mention a third, uh, well, a third of, of several actually new uh, forms of art, uh, data visualization art. We are, the age of technology has morphed into the age of information, the age of data, the age of data visualization art. Data visualization artists use algorithms to mine huge caches of data and represent these data aesthetically. And indeed, this is a, a bold new uh, redefinition of aesthetics into the age of information. And I'd like to, to give you, show you just one piece of this. This is an installation uh, called Flight Times. It was uh, created by the data visualization artist Aaron Koblen, who until recently was the creative director of the creative arts team at Google. And it's a representation of data from 250,000 airplane flights over the United States on 12 August 2008. And this is a screen grab. And in this screen grab, a pattern emerges, the pattern of the continental United States. Now, patterns are essential in data visualization art, as they are in data analysis, as they've always been in science. Patterns are the DNA of, of nature. Well, look, Arthur, you, you, you've set up our guest artists or scientists, uh, whatever you'd prefer to be called brilliantly now. So, Paul, there's a great um, okay, bit Can I just say one more thing? Oh, okay. If I may. away. Okay. Uh, I'd, I'd like to mention that the, the notion of art has been transformed since art isn't one with science and technology, and so has the notion of aesthetics. Uh, aesthetics in classical art is subjective because it's wholly in the eye of the beholder. While aesthetics in science has become increasingly objective, uh, particularly since the beginning of the 20th century. And again, one can pinpoint where the source of this, namely the first sentence in Einstein's relativity paper when he suggests using uh, symmetry and beauty, that is to say aesthetics, as a guideline in research. And aesthetics has become even more objective in sci art where the works are generated directly by science and uh, technology. And my uh, interviews with people at the center, artists at the center of this new movement, and once again, these are dispatches from the edge, uh, they tell me that the new measures of aesthetics are simplicity, function, balance between form and functionality, and meaning. And uh, it is the aesthetics of code, the aesthetics of images being created before your eyes, as is the case here. This is not a static display. It, gr it grows. Uh, and I, I can, let me give you a one-line definition of aesthetics, the, 
veins may stand out in some of your heads. <laughs> but uh, aesthetics, I give you an equation. I'll be checking. Okay. <laughs> aesthetics equals the image, and it need not be a visual image. It could be the image corresponding to any one of your five senses, plus that which produces the image. Uh, young artists are at home with definitions and transmogrifications of that sort. They swim easily in the world of the, in the exciting the world of the third culture. And now we should segue to Paul and Mike. Yeah, pa Paul, and there's a lovely bit in, in Arthur's book talking about uh, watching and listening to your work in a, in a freezing cold, deconsecrated <laughs> church. But anyway, over to Paul. Yeah, sure. Um, hello, everybody. Um, just like to pick up on two phrases that um, Arthur mentioned, which was um, the aesthetics of code and data visualization. The, f the first is very much about what my work is about. So I'm just going to explain while I show you a few slides to weigh your appetite, and then I'll show a few videos of the stuff that I do. Um, yeah, okay. So um, I'll just keep talking while um, we plug this in. Um, my work is very much involved in this idea of audio-visual performance, and I'm very much interested in the way that sound and video imagery can be what I call cross-wired. Um, some of you have probably heard of the term synesthesia. That's the medical term, but I'm more interested in abstract ways and technical ways and conceptual ways and perceptual ways and thematic ways of cross-wiring these two domains. So one of the things I do is use algorithms to get these two domains to talk to each other. So I'll typically use uh, uh, an algorithm to analyze sound and transduce that sound, transmute that sound into visual material. Um, and a lot of this material is very abstract. I'm interested in the idea of abstract narrative. I'm not interested in this representational thing. So some of it looks very data visualized orientated and some of it is maybe connected to the constructivist movement or some earlier geometric, geometric art. So yeah, um, I'm often performing on very large screens. This was a 23 meter screen. Um, I'm using different algorithms to transduce sound into geometric imagery. I'm often working and collaborating with musicians um, and also working on my own sometimes. Um, a big part of what I do is involved in working in planetariums. Uh, again, there's a much more immersive experience with the sound and the visual imagery. Um, this was a screen in um, Bristol, a 22 meter screen, um, which was really nice to play on. Um, again, going back to this uh, planetarium in Russia, um, the Kaluga Planetarium. Um, and here is working with some classical musicians to transduce sound into very liquid uh, metaphors. So some of you may have heard of somatics, which is the use of sound to transduce uh, liquid material into various patterns. Um, that probably explains a little bit about what I do. I'll show you a few videos just so you've got a rough idea of how they, they actually work in reality. Um, very different, which is hydroacoustic study. So I'm using, here I'm, I'm mapping some of these drones onto the surface of a simulation of a bubble, so I'm very much interested in um, harnessing physical simulations uh, from the scientific community. I think the great thing about um, artists of this present time is, you know, we have all these amazing papers and work um, on simulating nature using uh, 
very complex mathematics and we can, we can use those rather than for very, very explicit visualization, but for aesthetic purposes. I'm going to show you a few little snaps. Yeah, maybe we could just put the lights down a little bit with these videos. This is something completely different, a much more geometrical. Maybe a little bit more sound as well, please. just show you a small section of the piece Arpa was talking about which was again um, interested in the idea of space and also interested in the idea of uh, 4D space which is an extension of uh, 3D um, space in mathematics um, which has been of, of interest to science, science fiction writers as well as philosophers for, for at least uh, two or three hundred years. Um. things of using al algorithms is that um, it allows you to have parameters input to the system so I can control them in real time but also can use random data um, or random numbers which is beautiful because it creates an element of serendipity which means each performance is unique but also there's a tension in the performances where I'm trying to tame the randomness into some aesthetic uh, coherence. So I was gossiping with Paul beforehand, and actually to get the full experience, we should be in a giant dome, and you should all be lying on the ground, preferably after a couple of glasses of wine, staring up at this amazing imagery as this soundscape unfolds. Now we're going to go over to Mike, who's, uh, um, forgive the slightly primitive um, technological handover here, better known as unplugging and replugging the computer in. Um, and Mike, you know, we're living in the age of big data. Everything we transact with is gathering information about us. And Mike is harvesting this data to kind of render the invisible visible. So, Mike, over to you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, it's, as uh, Roger said there, there is a, a process of translation involved in data, but one of the biggest problems, I think, is a conceptual translation that uh, is actually uh, really exemplified in this Father Ted sketch, which, if you haven't seen it, I won't ruin it for you, but uh, <laughs> you should check it out uh, in the episode called Hell. 
right? Uh, where Father Ted tries to explain the transcalar, which is this relationship between the biggest thing ever uh, to the smallest thing possible. And uh, I look after a group called IDAT, which is very much focused uh, on researching into these uh, sort of various aspects of this transcalar relationship. Um, so I spent a lot of my time in what used to be a planetarium, flying people to the edge of the known universe, uh, allegedly, um, which of course draws on a language of zooming exemplified here in uh, Powers of Ten. Uh, or before that, back in the 1930s, this is A Matter of Life and Death uh, by uh, Press, uh, Pass and Pressburger here, and uh, slightly some sound. Again, in the 60s, uh, with sort of Papi and Mache, uh, flying through the same universe with this language of zoom. So flying from the furthest extremities of the perceivable uh, to slightly less uh, papier-mâché in that one there with uh, Star Trek, to Earth where we sit. And that kind of little trip I took you on is exactly the route um, that uh, Powers of Ten takes you on, Charles and Ray Yim's 1972 uh, IBM film, which takes you through this from the furthest imaginable to the smallest imaginable. Uh, and here we have this point that we exist at uh, in Antonioni's blow up here, and this wonderful quote he has about trying to understand you know, reality and how it, the closer you get to it, the more you zoom into it, that the actually the further it, uh, away it, it becomes as we can't grasp it anymore. And this is you know, then moving through this transcalar zoom to a level of the body. Uh, this is a piece, actually, I met Paul in, uh, very briefly, uh, we passed in Montreal uh, last year at, uh, at the IX Symposium uh, at SAT, Society of Art and Technology, where they have a d a, an art dome, uh, not an ex-planetarium, but a dome that was built specifically for art. Uh, and the piece we were working on was called Murmuration and this is actually uh, an MRI scan of my body, which is then converted into a full dome experience. So you're flying through my body here, and this is about, what is it? It's an 18-meter dome there, I think, in SAT. So you can fit about 100 people inside me. As it's quite <laughs> disgusting, really. Um, but it, it's this kind of relationship between the medical technology uh, that is of great importance to, obviously, all of us and, and understanding our bodies, um, but also trying to understand the way those technologies translate the data that they collect from them into a way that we can actually not just see and understand, but experience. Um, the piece that Arthur very kindly wrote about in his book, uh, Colliding Worlds, uh, is this piece. It's where I extract a mote of dust from my eye in a homage to uh, Hamlet or Horatio, who uh, refers to Hamlet's dead dad's ghost as a, uh, a mote it is uh, to trouble the mind's eye. And the mote, of course, is the smallest thing imaginable. So nanotechnology was actually conceived of you know, pre-Shakespearean times. Um, and as a word, it is both this noun and a verb. So it's uh, you know, the smallest thing possible, but it is also this, this way of conjuring things into being, so mote it be. And the, this, uh, this transition I took from uh, an uh, AFM scan um, uh, of an atomic force microscope scan of uh, this grain of dust, uh, you actually never see something that small. It is unseeable. But what you do get is a bunch of data which is then represented and visualized. Uh, normally, uh, it's done through that sort of image, or orange image I showed you at the start there. 
But what we were able to do was to take that as a height map and place it inside a full dome environment, which you can then virtually walk across. So you're suddenly at the scale of the smallest thing possible. Actually, atomic forces, not, not things, but forces. And the, the artwork, which was uh, at a quite an interesting show called uh, uh, Art, and uh, Art and Technology in the Nano Age, uh, which uh, was curated by uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, who's actually at the back there in Curtin University in Perth back in 2010, took that visualization of that data and used a simple uh, face recognition uh, algorithm, which recognized your face. And when it saw you looking at it, it would actually disappear. So what you can see here is actually the smallest thing imaginable, but it's also entirely invisible because as soon as you try and look at it, it evaporates. And what this consists of is a, a point cloud uh, data visualization plus a sonification. I don't know if you can hear that. So what you're listening to is actually the smallest thing uh, perceivable. Now this is great. It's, it challenges and traumatizes both artists and uh, uh, scientists, as it should do. I think that's the point. This is challenges both. Uh, the uh, disciplines that house both of those uh, characters, those creatures. This is a wonderful okay. film, The Man with X-ray Eyes with Ray Milland. It's beautiful. And really it talks about this problem of you know, looking into the edge of the known universe or to the smallest thing possible is frightening. Vision is fragmented. More light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. I have to close it. It's so traumatic that actually we can't look at this stuff. And more problematically, we don't yet have a real language to describe this. There is no tense for entanglement. Something in two places at the same time, that's not the past or the future, we don't have a language to describe it. And I think this is really what uh, many of the challenges are for artists and scientists working across this in this domain. And the way these things are blurring together is struggling to, tr to try and find both a uh, way of articulating this visually and intellectually. And so Mike, you, you, you clearly feel as much at home in the laboratory as you do um, you know, doing art and so on. What do you make of the traditional um, complaint about the two cultures, which comes up again and again and again. It's generally not the individuals who are involved in either of those practices that cause the problem. It is the kind of disciplines that, which, which, you know, are formed in, certainly in universities. And if you think about how every art college in the world has just kind of disappeared over the last few years, and they're now arts faculties, and they're defined by uh, borders which are both financial and historical divisions, Actually, with some of these interesting uh, media technologies, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Paul's work that he's doing uh, in full domes, that is a, a domain previously occupied by scientists. And the VJ community is just transforming that dramatically because the technologies have actually changed. And so you then start an evolve, uh, something that evolves which is a kind of weird hybrid or some kind of evolutionary form which really hasn't been supported by the disciplines historically. So Paul, what about your sort of evolutionary trajectory? Give me a sense of where your work 
comes from, the deepest origins of your work and where you think it's heading? Uh, you want to hear the lineage of how I got to where I was? or uh, Yeah, projecting and, for, and, for and if you can just join the dots into the future, uh, that would be wonderful. Well, I mean, I actually come from a fine art background and textiles background, um, but then I found that um, th those things were, were, you know, they were a little bit static, they were a little bit old-fashioned for me, so I wanted to work with these newer domains which um, allowed... Uh, in a way, to uh, step back as as a as a kind of traditional author of a piece and, and create a system whereby things could happen and an emergence could occur and and um, and surprise and serendipity became as important ingredients in the artwork as did you know this old old idea of stamping your you know personal style onto a piece and this intrigued me. I mean, this this is a, a trajectory that goes all the way back to you know music and John Cage and stuff like that. Um, Future-wise, I think algorithms and compu computational technology are a real um, kind of foundation for a whole spread of uh, futuristic artworks. And I think um, in much the way that we are being constantly su under surveillance from big data, um, everywhere we go on the internet is, 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 is seen um, and, and the data is collected to predict our marketing needs. I think in the future, potentially, artworks may even have some of these capabilities whereby you'll have systems that can biosense your um, uh, breathing or use EEG readings to perhaps uh, read uh, how you're responding to an artwork and perhaps confound or confirm your expectations mm. and, and the narratives may change on the fly so they will become very bespoke experiences potentially. So in, in terms of the wider trends, I mean digital is obviously one of them and it, it strikes me that if you talk to say someone like Craig Venter, he sees DNA as the software of life and we're beginning, I can see in, from the examples in your book, to not only play with bits and bytes in computers but we're beginning, aren't we Arthur, to sort of play with biology as well in the, in for, for the sake of art. Yes, there's a, uh, a general merging as one can see very clearly in the sciences, uh, for example a biotechnology uh, biology and technology, nanotechnology, electrical engineering, and, and physics. And uh, what you have now coming into art schools are uh, people, young people, who have been coding since they were eight years old and have been doing electronic art for a long time, too. And they want to continue with electronic art. They don't want to take the so what I've heard people call flat art. They don't want to take painting. They want to continue along. And in order to continue along, they take courses in mathematics and physics. And so one has a merging, a third culture merging, which um, uh, unfortunately universities are not uh, supporting in the way that they, that they should. So Mike, in terms of where we're going to, would you dare, would you dare single out one technology that you think is going to have a disproportionate effect on the trajectory of the kind of work you're doing or even an idea perhaps? I think it's an emerging technology that's, I think you can look back historically and see all technologies as something that's, that's come out of our dreams and desires and really we're just manifesting those as we go and we, they, they emerge but we knew they were coming, we, we wanted them to happen and I think AI is everything from the homunculus uh, that we kind of Faust created uh, that we carry on our backs and the kind of Jiminy Crickets uh, to uh, the, the kind of um, close relationship that we imagined in our 
childhood imaginary friends. And so I think AI is something, and it's, it's hugely popular, but the reason it's popular right now is because it is going to be so transformative, and it, it, it those kind of relationships that we have. But even in the way that we start to understand the world, we, we have, uh, it's so complex, all of these patterns are now being revealed to us. We, we actually haven't developed a language to deal with that. And AI, uh, in, in its kind of broadest, um, kind of deep learning context, uh, artificial neural networks, can actually start to understand things and ask questions, or present things to us which we can then ask questions about in ways that we would never have seen as being important before. Yes, and, and scenarios emerge in which uh, uh, human beings emerging with machines. Yeah. And we, we walk down the street with our phones, and we're at one with uh, all of the information, all of the knowledge that exists in the world today. And so we should be prepared for surprises in, in the future of what humanity will be like, what it means to be human. Well, we, we're working on a humanoid robot exhibition. We're going to pull together all these humanoid robots from across the planet. And actually, you can take this story back 500 years to automata. You can take it back to people like Leonardo, who's working on a, a mechanical knight, I seem to remember. And actually, when you look at what's going on there, they're trying to uh, look at the body as a machine, and it really is a machine if you see the proteins at work in the body, and actually understand what makes us tick. So it's actually a big exercise in, in understanding ourselves, and similarly AI, I guess, is, is hopefully going to get to the mystery of consciousness. Well, I think you can see that in our history. The golem is the perfect example of an entity which is programmed. You, you place a piece of code on its head and it will perform acts for you. And that's, we knew this was coming and that I think is incredibly exciting. So Paul, what, what, what's happening out there that, that is gonna, is there some new technology, some there's, new idea there's, that's exciting? There's so many, it's, it's, you're glancing, glancing in many directions at the same time, you almost need to be a machine to actually experience <laughs> the, what these machines are doing. Um, and it's accelerating at a, a greater and greater, almost exponential rate. Um, I wrote an article for a magazine uh, last year called Hollow, which explored potential f uh, display technologies. And I think that's another area. We're, we're probably just around the corner of true holographic, holographic display. It's probably maybe five or 10 years away. And this will be interesting because it's gonna be totally transform the way that we interact. Um, one of the things that's kind of been holding us back is we're still stuck with the keyboard and the mouse and we're interacting with a 2D space with, uh, with uh, basically switches. Um, and holography could open up all sorts of possibilities for actually manipulating a real three-dimensional space, if you can imagine. We have sensors in these spaces and we can see these objects. I mean, at the moment we have, uh, we've seen the revolution in 3D printing. All of these designs are made with algorithms on screens. Um, just imagine the possibility for actually voxel sculpting, sculpting, which would be to actually really, really physically sculpt these objects, sculpt these objects, and then get them 3D printed. But do you think you need some sort of force feedback? Because, uh, for example, I, yeah. I'm thinking of someone playing a theremin. I don't know if you've ever seen where that makes that eerie yeah. noise. Mm. It looks jolly difficult to yes. me, knowing where to put your. You know, surely you need something, some kind of tactile feedback if you use it to be. I'm guessing well now, I don't know. Yes it's and no, but y if you, um, because the way that you've e we've easily made um, display systems that can allow us to mimic, uh, sorry, explore 3D space with a mouse, but you wouldn't expect the 2D plane to be able to interrogate a 3D mouse, a 3D space that well. Right. So I do think that we'll find ways around that. I think the hardest thing will be actually have to have a high resolution display 
purely because of the amount of uh, virtual pixels that are involved. Imagine it's th three times the amount of cube, a cube variation. But presumably it's, it's great news for you, you and Mike because yeah. you're forever looking for giant domes and places where we can, people can lie down and stare up. And presumably you can just immerse them exactly. in, a, in a great holographic experience, which would be exactly. rather cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're can I sign up for the first, please, <laughs> yeah. actually? So, Arthur, what, what about you've kind of surveyed the whole scene of what's happening in SciArt. There, there must be some nooks and crannies we haven't talked about yet. That, uh, are there any, any other... I mean, you started to talk about one, for example, cybernetics, mm -hmm. that we're, 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 you know, you're, anyone who's using a smartphone is beginning to merge with technology. We've got cochlear implants, we've got retinal implants, Val heart valves and so on. Um, where's that all going to lead? Do you think we're going to be customizing ourselves in 20 years' time or something? Well, not customizing, that will be ourselves. I mean, there, there, uh, there was at one time what's, what's called the metaphor of uh, the mind as an information processing system in order to discuss how we think um, along the lines of how a digital computer works. But now it's becoming... Uh, uh, less and less of a metaphor and more and more of a physical reality in that uh, silicon-based neurons can be set up that communicate with flesh and blood neurons, which shows that indeed uh, we are information processing systems. And we're heading towards a merging of human with computers such that uh, there is a something called the omega point, which was uh, thought up, uh, well, recently popularized by Ray Kurzweil who's a computer scientist and who's an executive at Google, and uh, according <laughs> to him, in the year 2045, a bit too close, uh, machines will become as intelligent as human beings and will, could very well take over. Uh, but, uh, I mean, in my estimation, we'll be the machines. I mean, after all, the only thing we really need is our brains. The rest can be, you know, we can have haptic uh, parts substituted for everything, including sex organs. And, and so, uh, <laughs> we put in Come the on, leave us with a bit of fun in the world. Yeah, we will. That's <laughs> a, well, fun, the notion of fun, the con these are all <laughs> concepts. That would be redefined, too. But you just need the brain, put it into this container, and you're off and running, and you can stay alive for almost unlimited amounts of time along those lines. In other words, the future holds uh, a lot of surprises. There's no reason to be repelled by it or frightened by it. That's the way things are going, seem to be tending. I think it's an interesting point because it's often presented robots, machines versus people, but actually, as you say, you know, there, there's plenty of evidence that we're actually merging, we're making machines more like us and vice versa. One of the people in my book, uh, Scott Draves, who's a computer scientist, uh, uh, when I interviewed him, I, uh, I asked him what, he said he was always interested in computers, and I said, well, what, you, what were you interested in before? And he said, there was no before. <laughs> and as he put it, when he, when he sits at his keyboard, he thinks good thoughts. He doesn't want any, uh, you know, uh, terminator scenario occurring. We did actually try to have a quick chat with Pepper, the robot, but she was set on silence, so she did nod a lot, but she seemed to know what was going on, but it was a bit yes, frustrating. <laughs> so, Mike, what, what, what's your, any, any more in terms of where, where we're heading, Mike and Paul, just finally, before I bring in the audience? Um, any other trends in well, terms of, what about the ideas of science, for example? I, I think the robotic thing is quite interesting because it, it, I, I do quite a lot of work with roboticists who um, are always trying to build uh, you know, the android, the humanoid 
entity and you kind of think it's because they want a, a friend you know they, they just want to build their, their own mate <laughs> and really I think we're, we're entering into a period of, of time when when those sort of body mechanical forms are shifting we're, we already have robots in our phones that are doing things for us you know Siri you know, Cortona and things these are things that perform actions for us in the way that the robot was a really originally envisioned as, as doing it. They, they carry out our, our service. And I think with the advent of AI, these things are now becoming predictive. They're becoming much more symbiotic and uh, synergetic. And they have a potential, I mean, it is a potential to, to think unlike us as well. And one of the great things about being human is that we have an ability to for empathy with things that may or may not be alive or may or may not have consciousness. And what that means is that there, there is a potential for these forms to develop forms of consciousness, more or less sophisticated, but actually our ability to empathize with them and their ability to empathize with us will create a different non-physical relationship, I think. And that's really quite exciting. Consciousness is, uh, is still essentially uh, undefined. Hmm. And it could be that uh, we run through huge amounts of data, and out of that data come uh, things, feelings, uh, intents, impulses. Yeah, that we've never yeah. felt before. Right, yeah, right. And, and so yeah. machines, can, machines yeah. can do it too. Yeah. But I must admit, it does make me wonder whether we've neglected um, that great Darwinian experiment called nature. You know, if you, if you want, to, want to understand consciousness and awareness and intelligence, if you look at something like a squid, very alien, um, consciousness indeed. I wonder whether we should be putting perhaps more effort in trying to understand these existing consciousnesses as well as just trying to recreate brand new artificial ones. Well, I think that's really where we're learning about these other entities that we're dreaming up because you do. You go the first neuron was uh, squid no neuron was d used in Plymouth to understand, you know, the sort of synaptic connections yeah. and it built builds into an interesting kind of history of understanding and uh, we are part of that thing and I, th I think the mistake is to think that anything that we create from that is is really that different from that nature it, it is our nature to to do that well look, we've, we've ranged over an enormous number of ideas we've got about 15 or 20 minutes left it would be great to get some questions from the audience now for our distinguished panel um i can already see there's some um, there's uh, Professor Lithgow, no less, who's once is itching, who's the great godlike figure who presides over the festival. We're honoured to have you here, sir. Uh, thanks, Roger. <laughs> I'm um, yeah, just taking the chair's prerogative on this occasion for the first question. Um, I love this talk, and I love the topic. It's so close to my own heart. And I don't know whether this is a question or a comment, but it, I guess it's to Arthur. And... Uh, Lewis Wolpert, 20 years ago, wrote The Unnatural Nature of Science, and he argued very strongly that, that art couldn't contribute towards science. And that was around the time that the sci-art was kicking off 15, 20 years ago, and I got to know Sean Ead and, and Ken Arnold from the Wellcome Trust. And I guess we've had about 15 artists in the department now, and I, I've argued many times that art can contribute to science. But if I look back and I'm really honest, I, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure e even if those contributions had come from an artist, they could have maybe come from a engineer or a postman or a plumber. I'm not too sure if those contributions would have been particular to that artist or it was just a bright, creative person. Well, and I'm just not convinced mm -hmm. 
I, I'm really, and I think that was the same with the SciArt program. I would love it. I would love it if it's the case. And there's one or two examples that we can hold on to. But broadly, within science, it does not, I'm worried that it does not contribute, even with the extended models and the lack of the appropriate model and the isolation. It just doesn't contribute. Well, I've always disagreed with, with Lewis about that. Um, I, I can point out two cases where art has influenced scientists, and, uh, and art is due to an artist. Uh, Well, what I okay, so let me let me skip those two cases and okay, let me skip those two cases and say that uh, there is emerging, and it is more than one or two cases that there is emerging of art, science, and technology, and so it will be m this m idea of collaboration between artists and scientists usually doesn't work out, uh, but that and it's a minefield that whole area, and that area will just go by the wayside when artists, science, and technologists merge into one, as we have here. When I, you can't say that art is affecting science here, because it's all, it's all done together. Yeah, I, th I, yeah, I think it's a, I mean, it's a cultural issue. Uh, it, both that scientists think that they are n somehow not, or science is not, or scientists is not part of our culture. And uh, I think historically all of, you know, science has emerged from a very murky, uh, messy background, which has been as much informed by cultural shifts and ideas. Uh, essentially, that's what we're talking about, ideas. And I think the problem is if you treat it as being separate and one not needing the other, then actually that, that's quite a scary thing yes, to, to look at the future of, of science and our culture in, in that context. If, if you look at m most new and evolving uh, disciplines, look at... Uh, uh, neural science, for instance, there are th those are really interesting communities that are getting together from disciplines, usually where the individual who's moved into neuroscience from biology or psychology or robotics was on a periphery. And there are as many artists involved in those kind of thought processes in those contexts as there are a psychologist or a uh, roboticist. So I, I don't quite know where, where... I mean, I would agree with you that the whole sci-art thing in the 90s was a, a bit of a disaster because it was just about getting some artists to illustrate science. And that was not, I mean, that I think is symptomatic of both that um, the disciplinary problem, but also of the curatorial framework that was set up by Nestor Arts Council, Gilbenkian and the Welcome to, to put that together. It was a false kind of uh, you know, problem in, in the first place. Right, I, I totally agree with you mm. on that. And uh, I, what I uh, hoped I, I did, but uh, juxtaposing the first page of Einstein's relativity paper and Les Demoiselles d'Avignon is to illustrate that boundaries blur between artists and scientists at moments of high creativity. If you want to do some great work in science, great work in art, you work outside of your, you take into account uh, knowledge outside of your discipline. I think we should, let, let's carry on. We've got another question here from Tom. Briefly, yeah, thanks folks. It was really stimulating. I just wonder whether, though, it, it, though that was a very helpful comment on, on sci-art tonight. You very carefully called what you're talking about art-sci, which is different. But I wonder whether we could go a bit uh, somehow deeper. 
And I wonder if, rather than just talk about science and art being merging, and you've used that, Arthur used that word a lot, and I'm just very suspicious of it, but nonetheless, more as windows onto something deeper. So th there's, there's um, a continuous philosophical line of thought which asks why we do art, why we do science, what these things do anthropologically, what these do for the situation of being human. And if I just throw you a, a, a quote which has always struck me, um, it's extraordinary prescient to this debate by George Steiner, who said in his amazing little commentary on, on, on art and postmodernism, real presences, only art can make accessible, can wake into some measure of commensurability the sheer inhuman otherness of matter. And the re reason I remember that quote is because it, I was just bowled over by it. I almost literally fell over when I we read it. We can substitute science for Yeah, exactly. So when I, I said you could substitute science, but if that's true, then art and science don't merge. They are perspectives onto something which is happening much deeper. And I wonder whether this new movement you're talking about um, can shed light onto why, teleologically, we do art or science. Emerging is more powerful than them working separately towards a common goal, let's say. And that common goal, uh, which has always been for artists and scientists, is to make visible an invisible world, be it the, the world of matter or the world, the world of our minds. And so they've been working on, on the same problem since time immemorial. Now there are still some, lots of questions, so I'm, I'm gonna, unless you guys are itching to jump in on Tom's attempt to open up a sort of deeper issues here, I think That's we're gonna keep, question, it, yes. keep it moving to the next question here, because lots of interest in the audience. Fire away. Hi, thank, thanks for the presentation. The, the pictures were amazing. And I was wondering, as artist, um, whether it's the ideas, the construction of your piece, or the experience that the audience see that so, sort of like most gets you going. So out of those three things, is it beginning, middle, or end? Um, it's, it's, it's all three, but obviously the, the relationship that you have with the audience is, is, is really important. Whether you can actually convey what goes on in your mind, um, that's, that's another trick in itself. Um, I'm interested in trying to tell stories with abstract imagery. Um, abstract art has been around for a long time. This idea of non-representational non forms somehow encoding experience, ideas, narrative stories. So this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in um, really trying to explore what would be seen as very traditional and classical ideas of narrative. So a beginning, a middle, and an end, a crescendo, a, a, you know, a proposition, and a resolution. And I'm interested in, in now using these new technologies to re, have another look at these things using these new technologies, really, you know, um, because I think they offer so much, such an expansive uh, set of possibilities to, to interrogate this, this idea. I must re-articulate this in a totally Neanderthal way. Does that mean you want the audience to like what you're doing? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a tricky question. <laughs> uh, well, it's better that there's not an average indifference with your audience. Right. Um, you know, we have these great <laughs> historical examples of, well, apparently uh, people used to storm out of concert halls, early Russian music, mi sorry, turn of the century Russian music, Stravinsky, um, Skriavin, Prokofiev. You know, he, you hear these great stories of riots occurring. This would also be a great uh, reaction, uh, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the sort of uh, non-committed indifference is what we really don't want. Um, like, again, is a tricky one because right. we're, we're playing, playing to many different audiences, but 
It's, it's kind a of a, it's a bonus. So, Mike, are you provoking riots or applause? I, I think provoking is c kind of part of what we try and do, but it, it, I mean, I like to see it as more of a conversation, and the conversation starts usually quite early on, whether it's with a line of code or whether it's with a colleague or, or, or just, you know, random kind of conversation, which then develops through a set of... Comp usually the work that I do is quite... Uh, like with full dome stuff, it's, you can't just, well, you can actually, but you tend not to just plug something in. It involves a team of people, and so there's a lot of conversation that goes on there. You bring together interdisciplinary groups and you, you work trying to realize ideas, sort of steer them, and you know, obviously get your ego into them as well. And then it becomes a conversation with, with the audience in that process. And that, I think, it, again, depends on the nature of what you're trying to do. What, one of the problems with a lot of this stuff is that you are trying to deal with. Uh, an aesthetic, uh, a language problem, which is not necessarily fully formed or previously experienced. So, yeah. it, it, you know, you're dealing with quite complex behaviours of audiences and, and the people that have collaborated to yeah, make yeah. something. And it's also tricky because the context is very important. Your mm. audience changes. Sometimes the audience is very aware of what, what what's going on behind. Um, so they see more than what is just being shown. I mean, occasionally people come up to me and say, that was a really nice video. How was it encoded at the end of your show? At uh, which point you explain to them it's software and everything is generated live and it's different each time. And then you realize, you know, you're not making a point, but because, you know, they're, they're, like Mike is saying, there's a whole language and there's a whole layer of understanding. And this is true for every kind of art. This is true for cubism um, and everything that, uh, you know, every kind of new art has already always proposes a new set of structures and new set of idioms and syntax that has to be learned to some degree to really fully appreciate it. A problem with language uh, concerning uh, cubism, for example, and new forms of art and with, with entanglement uh, is that you're stuck with a language our everyday language, which is full of perceptions, and on the quantum level, and even on the level of, of a lot of art as well, uh, you're dealing, for example, on the quantum level with things, that's all you can call them, is, is things, things that are both wave and particle at the same time. They're not imaginable, so they're not imageable either, and we don't have a language for that, so we run into trouble in using our language, which refers to objects that we can touch. Let's have the next question. Firstly, thank you all for your talks. They were very interesting. Um, I have a question for Arthur and Mike. Um, you both spoke about machines becoming increasingly integrated with humans. And I think, Arthur, you mentioned the silicon chips becoming closely tied with flesh. Mm. Do you think we'll have to redefine in the future what it means to be human and our definition of humanity may have to change. It's been changing anyway over the, over the centuries, and, and, and certainly um, our definition of what it means to be human will, will have to be transformed more and more as we get more and more chips in us. I mean, we, we already can have uh, uh, mechanical, you know, uh, silicon knees, titanium knees, hip transplants. A chip in the head is coming, so you don't have to forget anybody's name and so on. <laughs> uh, so we will eventually be different than we are now, maybe more efficient than we are now, too. Uh, yeah, I also think it's, it's, there's a problem of, it's, it's, I think we are generally a work in progress, <laughs> you know, to use that <laughs> psychotherapy thing, but as a species, <laughs> the, I, I'm not sure what, how adequate the definitions are of us anyway. Um, 
you know, you look at the Anthropocene and, and how actually that's not really a good thing to be a human in that kind of context, the damage and stuff that we do on a daily basis to a, a rather small blue marble. So I think maybe we need to reconceive ourselves of what we are and what it means to be not just an individual but a collective. That, that I, I think that is something that's... Um, you know, certainly when you look at some of the technologies, you look at the full dome environment, that for centuries has been about looking out into space but and is increasingly about looking at the, the world you know, in a kind of Buckminster Fuller way, um, that the overview of the Earth becomes the focus of actually, you, you know, v the, these data visualizations are, are just making it more and more clearer that we really are making a bit of a mess of this place right now. And the fact that we can see it in real time means that we're not thinking about what it was human at the turn of the century or the previous century, we can start thinking about what it means to be human right now. Um, so yeah, I, I think, yeah, human humans or human humanity, I think is uh, interesting uh, shifts that can be enabled. The notion of what it means to be creative will, al will also change. Mm. So I think we've got time just for one more question. Um, so someone who's absolutely itching to ask a question. I don't know if we've got a microphone lined up. One more question from the audience. Oh, look, we've got, oh, you've be just been pipped to the post. <laughs> Sorry, fire away. Hello, this is fascinating. I've often thought that going to a concert is a very limited experience. Could I look forward to going, not only hearing Mozart, but seeing it as generated by Mozart himself and also by an artist's algorithms? I believe that's being done already, but there are people such as Glenn Gould, who believe that uh, the day of the concert is over. What you should be able to do is uh, have, have a lot of links to a lot of different music and be able to mix, mix music and make your own concerts. Mm. And we shouldn't forget that your dream is actually, it's been around uh, since Screaming, who wanted to actually make, and actually did have made a, a color organ, a kind of organ that would allow him to play, as well as playing the keyboard, allowed him to play uh, a projection, a rudimentary projection of, of different kinds of colors. And this, this whole kind of area has been explored since the 1920s, again, as a result of this incredible um, revolution in technology that occurred then. You know, so again, going back, I think it's really important that most of these things have already been dreamt out many hundreds of years be Can before. You describe ballet as what ballet is? Yep, that's, 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 also, that's also the case. But Paul, you, you mentioned uh, right at the start you were interested in synesthesia, this blending of senses. Yep. Do you think that... Um, yeah, there's a famous link between some artist creativity and synesthesia. Yeah. Do you think we'll have to expand our minds and our consciousness to get to really get the full experience of some artists? Uh, well, I think that's one of the roles that technology is playing, allowing allowing the augmentation of those kinds of experiences. You know, for example, augmented reality and virtual reality—two things that were really big in the 90s that that died a death again because the technology wasn't there to support them. They are allowing us to experience the world as a synesthete possibly might do um, with with technology such as algorithms and computer science. Mike, last. I'd rather that we're maybe argue that we're maybe pre rather too preoccupied by human stuff, and there are other forms of creativity. We did a quite a nice project of about 2002 with some Sulawesi macaque apes in Peyton Zoo, where we got them to work on the uh, complete works of Shakespeare in that kind of infinite <laughs> monkey theorem. <laughs> Their writings was quite exquisite. Don't understand a word what they said, but it was. I'm I sure think they did. That's <laughs> a great place to end, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, thank you for those brilliant questions. Don't forget that Arthur will be signing his book uh, in the bookshop. And finally, do give a warm hand of applause to our brilliant speakers. <laughs>